Blog Talk Radio. Good evening, everyone. This is Marty Oakley of the PPJ Gazette Online, and this is the DS Radio Network. Good evening. The recording you just heard is in memory of Marty Oakley, who is the backbone of these programs where we talk about the atrocities happening to the elderly and disabled that you might not otherwise hear. Marty passed on April the 1st and left a void in this program and in our hearts. She was an amazing advocate and warrior who always took a stand for people and gave them a voice, even when others criticized and screamed conspiracy. Today, I think Marty is an angel looking over us and cheering us on as we continue to tell the truth and to stand up for the vulnerable. She never gave up until she took her last breath. Rest in peace, Marty. We have to watch. I'm Marcia Joyner, and this is Betrayed by Hospice, brought to you in coordination with Marcel Reed and the Whistleblower's Life and Shenanigans in Pennsylvania. As many of you may already know, in June 2017, my mom was a victim of hospice abuse and murder. We moved my dad at age 89 to live with my husband and me. At that time, he lost his wife, his home, his car, his church, and part of his family in his home state. And the reason I point this out is because it is a trauma that played a part in his life. Over the course of the next four-plus years, we made many precious memories that I'll always cherish. But I began to notice slight changes in his memory and moods, but I didn't think much about it because he had earned the right, and all of us forget things sometimes. And one day he said, your dear old dad is losing his mind. And I chuckled and said something like, we all lose our minds and forget stuff, and, and I didn't think much about it. But eventually the changes became more drastic, which I'll go into later during the program. So late summer of 2021, I point blank asked the doctor about it, and he stated just matter-of-factly, yeah, he's got dementia, not Alzheimer's, but old-time dementia. Now, I don't understand why he didn't diagnose Dad with that earlier, as we saw him every few months, but he didn't. Dad became more erratic with moods, memory, and things he would say. One day, he couldn't remember how to put his foot down on the next step of two steps to go to the bathroom that he had been using for years. I gently set him down on the floor and called my husband on the phone to come home and help. I admit to not understanding dementia, and I was ill-prepared to deal with the journey in the best way that I knew how. I read articles about dementia once I realized he had it and joined some groups, but I still, they were missing some of the best ways to cope and treat my dad and to understand what he was experiencing. My dad passed in October 2021, almost 94 years old, and I sadly realized I didn't make all the right decisions in that journey. So I started looking for someone with knowledge who could help me to understand and share their expertise on this program for those of you who may be going through the frustration and the sadness that I felt. In December, I found Judy Cornish. She agreed to come on and share her expertise, and her first available date was April the 19th. So here we are. Judy Cornish is an elder law attorney and a geriatric care manager who has spent the past seven years working with families and people experiencing dementia in northern Idaho. Prior to her work in dementia care, she practiced law 
worked in vocational rehabilitation with traumatic brain injury and spent a year as a psychosocial skills trainer in an enhanced care unit for the mentally ill. With her varied background in education and literature, languages, fine arts, and the law, she brings a diverse set of skills and unique approach to dementia care. She created Dementia and Alzheimer's Wellbeing Network. Another name for that is DAWN, D-A-W-N. Her DAWN method enables families to keep their loved ones at home longer with less stress and more comfort. Today, Judy runs Palouse Dementia Care, providing case management and care services and the Dementia and Alzheimer's Wellbeing Network, through which she consults and provides training in the DAWN method. She has authored two books, The Dementia Handbook, How to Provide Dementia Care at Home, which explains the pattern of abilities and disabilities, and then her second book is Dementia with Dignities that utilizes the tools of her DAWN method to detail the emotional needs and provide specific techniques to respond to each. Tonight during the program, I will be sharing some of the experiences that I found with my dad for two reasons. One, in case you haven't witnessed it yourself and you have no idea, I had no idea this was going to happen. And so that way you can see certain things that happened. And secondly, that Judy can explain what he may have been going through and how I could have approached it differently. And she can provide the audience on techniques to lead you on your journey with a loved one. Tonight during our time with Judy, if you have a question or a comment, select one on your phone and you'll be put into a queue to talk directly to her. So please join me in welcoming Judy Cornish to our program tonight. And Judy, I appreciate you coming on, and I'd like for you to start with telling us how you chose this path, or how did this path choose you? Yeah, I think probably it's more like how this path chose me, but um, can you hear me okay? I can. Yes, I can. Okay. All right. I always have to check. I'm living this far north, this far, this close to the Canadian border, but... Um, you know, and actually, I, that must have been an old bio for me because now it's been 13 years. Um, oh, okay. It was 2010 when I arrived. I, I thought I was moving to a small town in rural Idaho close to the Rocky Mountains. Um, I had planned to practice elder law and partially retire, you know, garden, ski. Um, but um, I got to know a neighbor. And uh, when I went over and said hello and introduced myself um, to this lovely woman who lived across the street, uh, the first thing she said, well, you know, lovely to meet you, but I have to tell you, the thing I'm best at is forgetting. I was diagnosed with Alzheimer's. I can't remember how many years ago she said at this point, but she said, I'm really good at forgetting, so please don't be offended if I cannot remember your name. And I said to her, well, no worries. I've got a really good memory, so we'll be fine. And our friendship began from there. But um, really quickly, I, I learned that they were the family. Her children thought they would need to be moving her out of her home. I think she lived in that home more than 50 years. And I volunteered to help. And within six weeks, I can't remember I, how many people had called me and asked me if I'd check in on their parents. And within two months, I was Googling business 
and business plan to see what, whether I had started a business inadvertently. And that was the yeah. beginning of Palouse Dementia Care. <laughs> so mm-hmm. um, the past found me. But, you know, I think when, when, we, when we are open um, to being led and when you say, when you, when you open yourself up and you say, I want to do something that is good, good for the community, uh, good for my neighbors, but also good for other people. I, I think the opportunity comes to you. And really, um, my my opportunity there in Moscow, Idaho, was very unique because not too many of us can put aside our career and choose to spend, uh, at first, the first five years I spent more of my time with people who were experiencing dementia than people who weren't. And this was with people who lived in a small town in a fairly remote rural area. Hardly anybody locked their doors back then. And people were living at home with dementia before they had been moved and before they had been um, required to begin living in a group living situation, which most, most of us, let's face it, most of us have lived either alone or with our families for most of our lives. So it was a really unique opportunity for me to see what dementia looks like when we haven't gone through multiple traumas and that happening to us at the time of our lives when we are the least equipped to learn or to cope. So I I think it was a a really remarkable opportunity for me. and, and uh, since that time, I did sell Palouse Dementia Care to an employee of mine, uh, and Laura has carried on. She still, I just was down last weekend uh, meeting with her and her staff. Um, and the Dawn Method, now all of my attention goes into the Dawn Method, which is a um, training and education uh, provider for teaching families and uh, professional caregivers, how to work with dementia and recognize the strengths. So I thank you for inviting me, Marcia. It's, um, it's always a joy for me, a pleasure to to share what I learned from my clients with other with other families. Oh, absolutely. Now, with the, with the dawn um, technique, do you have a lot of professional people that come to you, like from the nursing homes, and are they actually coming in to be trained on how to be better at taking care of a patient? Well, um, for me, I, you know, my focus began originally because, yeah, I before before I went to law school, I, I was just living in a small town and and didn't want to move. My son was going to graduate from high school, and I took that job as a psychosocial skills trainer, and I had no background at all in working with people who were mentally ill. But they were desperate for, for workers, and, um, you know, they sent me off to every, kind, every training available. But so for a year, I worked with 20, 23, I think. We had 23 people, 25 beds in this lockdown facility for the mentally ill. And it was in the same building as a long-term care, um, uh, a, a care, a memory care unit, uh, 94 beds, 
only for people who were experiencing Alzheimer's or dementia. And what I saw that year was truly horrifying to me. And so when the opportunity came for me to go to law school, I took everything I could think of. I wanted to change the way we treat our elders in America. I took disability law, elder law, family law, um, everything I could see or think of that might equip me to better understand how we could change the way we treat our elders in this country. Um, A decade in the law, uh, I spent a decade in the law before I ended up in Moscow and inadvertently left law behind and, and began to actually provide dementia care myself. So my goal at first was to help families understand how to work with dementia, how to support their loved ones without inadvertently embarrassing them and demanding or expecting that they would be able to use skills that that they certainly had previously, but that they are in the process of losing to dementia. So that's a long answer, and I'm sorry, I'll come back to it. Um, Many, I get a lot of inquiries from activity directors, um, nursing directors, sometimes executive directors from long-term care facilities. And I explain to them when they inquire that, yes, I've got training. I have training programs that will definitely help you provide kinder, um, more uh, supportive care. But then they don't return because, of course, it's the corporation itself that would need to um, contract with Dawn and provide the right. training to its to its staff. So yeah, I I do have some um, corporate Dawn partners, which um, is is the product that I sell for um, helping facilities become trained. And um, I I don't know whether <laughs> if it prevents me from saying names or not, so it simply won't. But my I, I, one partner uh, that provides um, that has a senior care community, they were they managed to train half of their staff in the Dawn method, um, and they're still working to get the other half. They have, of course, um, several hundred people, but they saw their turnover rate plummet. It was well over a hundred percent turnover. And it, it, they, they hit zero last fall. And it was because wow. their staff felt so much better about their jobs and, and because there was such an improvement um, when they understood how to work with dementia rather than just react. So, right. Well, that was encouraging. What, what, yeah. what we've right. seen often and, and heard is that they chemically will restrain a dementia patient in many cases um, if they are in a nursing home. And, you know, one of the things that we've said all along, if you leave your loved one in a facility, you know, obviously the best thing you can do is to keep your person at home. That is the absolute best. And, you know, love them, understand what's going on, you know, things like what you you and I have talked about several times. But if they had to go into a facility Somebody else is not going to care for them the way you were. You know, they don't love them. No. And often they are chemically restrained because the person who has taken care of them doesn't understand 
what they're going through, doesn't understand how to cope with it and what they could do differently. Um, one of the things that I was reading, because I've been reading a lot, you have a lot of information out there for people to read, but one of the things that yeah. I was reading is a person had commented back about your program going through it, and she said something that struck home with me. She said, I learned to live where mom was. And yeah. I thought yeah. about that, and I'm like, that is so true, because we have to go to where they are. They can't come to where we are because the skill set is not there. And I yeah. think that's tremendous. You know, so. but... I have to tell you, so here's two things that, that we should say um, to your listeners, Marcia. Some Many families are forced. They don't have the option of keeping their loved one home all the way through death or, or they can't, you know, because of the home or the money situation. I Here in Idaho, I had so many clients where because of the way Idaho has written its Medicaid uh, provisions, it's not possible to get care for a person living in their own home. They have to be in a facility to collect Medicaid. So that forced many of my clients to move eventually into a a care facility. But other factors will happen too, where you have a home that's rapidly deteriorating. Um, You know, I've had that happen to clients. So some families are forced um, and often... You know, this is very much uh, a part of our American culture, and there's there's reasons for it that we really can't help. You know, for instance, look at the size of this country and how spread out we are as a result. If you grew up in New York City and you ended up going to college at UCLA and then your first job was Seattle, it's really difficult to keep your family together. And so we end up with a lot of long-distance caregiving. However, you know, you look at Germany. Germany's the size of Oregon. And if I grew up in the southern extreme south of Germany and then my job was in the north, I could still jump on a bullet train every Friday night, spend the weekend with mom and dad. My kids would grow up knowing their grandparents. And I could be back at work Monday morning at 8 a.m because the country is so small. So the, right, we, you exactly. know, we have, we've got some real problems here. But the other thing, you know, that I think we should definitely say is that, that to meet our, you know, when, when your loved one is experiencing dementia, that is true. We must meet them where they are because they have lost and are going to lose more of their cognitive skills. We haven't. We're, we're the ones who haven't lost skills, so we're the ones who need to um, provide assistance and and meet them where they are. But I have to say this, Marcia, you know, that five years that I was able to afford to just put my career aside and just spend all my time with my elders, my neighbors that were experiencing dementia, I have never had so much fun. And the reason for that, now, you know, and I can right now I can hear all the family caregivers saying, "Oh my goodness, there is nothing fun about this at all." But there's mm-hmm. there's some things to keep in mind. Um, number one, if your spouse is experiencing dementia, that is the most difficult task a human being can tackle. 
there is there is no task more difficult than having a long-term intimate relationship in which one party will gradually and suddenly without warning lose skills that that is so exhausting and so stressful for the other partner and for their healthy brain so if if you are a spouse caregiver my heart goes out to you and anybody else who knows what you're going through but it's you do need respite and our our culture we are so separated and our families are so far apart that it's really hard to get the respite so your respite will lie in understanding how your loved one how your partner is changing so that you can join them in the present in the intuitive world where they are forced to live and that's when you're going to get moments of respite and moments of pure joy and moments of pure love for the then look at look at your position marcia for for all of us who had a parent who began to experience dementia that's the next most difficult thing we as human beings will ever tackle it's being the child of somebody who is losing cognitive skills to dementia and it will break your heart and it'll wear you out um, and in our country the, with the price of long-term care and long-term care insurance it, it will bankrupt you it's terribly expensive we all know that the easiest role as a caregiver is what I did I was a third party I came to my clients wide open no baggage no long-term relationships and so I was able to accept them for who they were in the moment but in being able to do that my task then because it was simpler and I wasn't as emotionally uh, embedded um, right it was easier for me to see patterns and to see and to see beyond what we typically use the model we typically use when we are looking um, in this country looking at the problems that dementia creates for us and that I think is is what is the the true value in what I'm bringing um, it's really big picture <laughs> but if you, do we have the time to do this Marcia can we talk about big picture for a moment you, sure okay all right so what happens what happens when you know um, it's your your loved one we'll just say loved one your parent your your sibling your friend your your um, your spouse and and they start they start doing odd things or, or you realize that they don't know things they ought to know or you find them unable to grapple with a cognitive problem or to understand something and it's odd it's new it's different well if you're lucky you might be able to get that person to go with you to their doctor and if you're extremely fortunate you might they might have a doctor a GP who will pay attention and will take you seriously um, that that GP might take you through a, a, a your, your loved one through a mini mental and your loved one may ace it because of their background um, school teachers tend to ace them um, you know lawyers ace that um, 
a lot of people mask sufficiently that that visit to the GP, they, 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 the GP will not believe the companion that this person is really exhibiting um, worrisome memory loss or cognitive uh, rational thinking loss. But that, then what do we do? Let's say you've got a really good GP. Now you're going to go to the neurologist. What's the next step? You go to the neurologist and you do all these tests. Well, most people, most of us, if we are experiencing dementia and we're losing memory skills, but we're still keep, we still have most of our rational thinking skills, then we are able to perceive that we are losing skills. You have to have your rational thinking skills to be able to perceive changes in yourself. So... If a person's losing mostly memory skills, they'll probably agree to go to a neurologist. Now, what's happening then? Your loved one is being put through all of these tests, and the tests are proving to your loved one, as well as you and the neurologist, exactly how profound their deficits are at present. And the diagnosis is that dementia and it's going to be ongoing, it's going to be progressive deterioration, and we do not have a cure. That means that the individual who who is losing memory skills but keeping their rational thinking skills should be and will be terrified. This is mortal terror. This is going to kill me. It is going to be terrible. I'm going to go crazy. Well, it would be depressing. What am and that's the next thing. The next thing, it's not so much depressing as it is deeply, it's deep grief because they must now grieve what they will lose, the future they are losing, but they also must grieve the future their loved ones are losing, what, what their diagnosis of dementia will cause for their family. Mm-hmm. So the person who, who is aware that they're going through changes and can perceive their diagnosis, they are going to be grieving and terrified, terribly, terribly um, uh, distressing. You, that is emotional pain. And Well, it's kind however, of like my dad. You know, my dad saying, you know, your dear old dad's losing his memory. He knew some yes. or losing his mind. He knew something yes. was off. He, his rational part knew that. But, right. you know, we didn't diagnose it that. I just thought he was, you know, forgetful like, you know, all of us are. And but yeah. so if would that be better not, you know, because I didn't find out until a few months before he passed, is it really better to just suspect it and not know it or the person <laughs> not to know well, it? Because I didn't tell know, him see, that, you know, after yeah. the doctor said see, that he had dementia. I didn't tell him he had dementia. Yeah, I, it depends. Okay, there's, that's the, what lawyers say all the time, right? It depends. <laughs> that's yeah. all I can say. It depends. Okay, you put your it lawyer depends, hat on, but, Judy. <laughs> but you see, um, for some of us, some people want to know. And so they want to know everything. And for those of us that want to know, it is better to do all of this together. But the... The greater number of us, when we're experiencing the onset of dementia, will lose more than simply memory skills. Most of us will be losing rational thinking skills at the same time 
And some of us lose rational thinking skills before you see any loss in memory skills. Now, the other so thing we need is... Explain well, what the rational thought is. <laughs> well, it, so um, it depends on which type of, ex, of dementia I'm experiencing as to what's going to go first. And I always think of Alzheimer's as the easy one because, because typically with Alzheimer's, you lose your memory skills first. And, um, and they go from... You're losing from the near past ever deeper into the past. But to lose my rational thinking skills... What does that mean? Now, if you go to the neurologist and they say, your loved one is losing executive functioning, what's that mean? For, for me, that, that meant nothing. And it didn't help me at all to hear, you know, executive functions. But, but what's it mean? What, what the neurologist is really talking about is losing rational thinking. So here's neurology, one, kindergarten level neurology. We human beings, we have two completely different independent sets of thinking skills. We have rational thinking skills and we have intuitive thinking skills. Now, we in America, we think rational thinking skills are the good ones and they're primary. And that's wrong. They're not. Our rational thinking skills are the secondary set. And what the rational thinking skills allow us to do, it's like a toolbox, you know, and you've got a couple of pliers and some screwdrivers and a hammer and maybe a chisel. That's your rational thinking skills. And those skills are the ones we lose to dementia. And here's what they let us do. Number one, and and I'll, I'll give you the most frustrating loss of rational thinking skills, most frustrating loss uh, first is cause and effect. Now, how many of us have ever noticed ourselves using the rational thinking skill cause and effect? None of us. Because we begin to use it at birth. We may even use it during gestation. But when the infant is born, very quickly the infant figures out that if it cries, mom appears. Happy faces appear. If it um, smiles and laughs, then everybody smiles and laughs and gets happy. So we start using cause and effect at birth. What's it look like if I lose that skill? So, you know, one thing that everybody complains about with dementia is um, it's supposedly one of the symptoms is that we go through personality changes. I'm not sure about that (laughs) because, for instance, here's an example. Um, and I, I call all my clients Mary just just to make sure I'm not using names. So I drop in on Mary winter day, and she and I need to go to the grocery store. So I say, hey, Mary, let's go to the grocery store. She says, great, yes, let's. And I said, we should get some hot chocolate while we're there. Oh, that sounds lovely. That'll be great. And I say, okay, so here's your winter coat. Let me help you put it on. And she looks at me, and she says, why? I'm not wearing that. And I said, no, 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 Mary, Mary, it's, it's snowing outside. Like, see, look out the window. And she looks out the window and she says, yeah. And I say, see, it's snowing. It's a blizzard. It's really cold. You're going to want your jacket. And she says, yeah. And then I say, see, so let me help you put it on. And she says, no, I'm not putting that on. And now she's getting irritated. What's happening? 
what's happening is Judy is expecting Mary to be able to use cause and effect. I've shown her that it's cold outside and I'm asking her to put on her coat because I know, because I can use cause and effect, I know that as soon as she walks out the door, she's going to be cold. Now for Mary, that's not happening. She doesn't have that ability. Mary's standing in the living room. It's 72 degrees in the living room because she likes her house warm. And she's not cold. And I'm telling her to put on a coat? She thinks I'm crazy because she can't figure out why she should. So when I finally understood that my clients were using the ability to, to perceive cause and effect, that that was a, a rational thinking skill and it was going, that's when I stopped trying to insist that they do something in preparation for something else or that they do something to avoid an outcome. So with Mary, if she says, no, I'm not putting that on, I say, oh, not a problem. Well, I'm going to wear mine. You know me. I'm always cold. Do you mind if, if I take your coat in case I get really cold? And she's like, oh, no, honey, that's fine. You just go right ahead and take my coat. So I tuck her coat under my arm, and, and we, we go out the back door and, you know, turn around, get the door locked. She turns around. We've been out there about three seconds. And she looks at me and she says, oh, my goodness, it's cold. And I, I say, oh, my, good thing we brought your coat. Let's put it on. I'll help you. And if I understand that she can't comprehend cause and effect, then I don't expect her to do it. And when I stop expecting her to do what she can't do, she and I don't get into, don't get into trouble. I'm very good point. She doesn't yeah. get frustrated. That's number one. Okay, next one. This is another one that every one of us human beings has been using since the moment we opened our eyes is sequencing. And sequencing is a whole lot like cause and effect, but a little different because there's no outcome. It's just a chain of events. So imagine um, that same thing, Judy and Mary, we're going to go someplace. And, and uh, I, I want us to go for scenic drive and maybe we can drop in at the Arboretum and go for a walk and see if the, see if the hellebores are, are blooming yet. So Mary says, oh, that sounds lovely. Let's do it. And I say, okay, I'll tell you what. You grab your shoes and socks and I'll get your coat and your purse and then we'll be ready to go. And she looks at me and she looks a little blank. But Mary is 79 years old. Judy's only 50-something, and Mary doesn't want to be embarrassed. So she goes off to the other room, and she's going to attempt to do what I asked her to do. What did I ask? I asked her to do two things. I said, go get your shoes and your socks. Now, if if Mary was two years old, I'll bet you could say to her, Mary, we're going to go to town. We're going to get hot chocolate. Go get your shoes and socks. Meet me at the back door. That would be three things. And I'll bet that two-year-old should do it. Because two-year-old can use um, sequencing. But sequencing right. is a rational thinking skill. And when we do it, we can't do it anymore. And boy, especially if you say, Judy, put on your shoes and socks. I had a client. Who are you... Judy, are you moving at all because you're you're coming in and out? Oh no, 
not have six skills. Um, is that better? Uh, say Anybody something else. Okay, so yes. if I, um, is that a little better? That's a little better, yeah, because it sounds can, like you're kind of in a well or something. Yeah, oh, okay. Goodness. If that's, right now I've got the microphone really close to my face. It's, okay, that's so that's much I'll better. Try, I'll try to hold it up. Okay. Okay. Yeah, so we have to put a reception up here. But um, so if I ask somebody to do two things, you know, brush your teeth and, and get ready for bed. Oh, that's a whole lot of things all wrapped into two. But any time I ask someone when they're experiencing dementia, and I ask them to do more than one thing at a time, and if they've lost the ability to sequence, I am setting them up for failure. I'm going, they're going to end up frustrated and or embarrassed. And then I'm going to be irritated, and then we're going to have, uh, you know, companionship is gone. There's going to be a conflict. And especially if right. we're talking um, spouses or partners or, or a, a child trying to help a parent, it just becomes, you know, conflict. So those two. And then the third one is prioritization. To be able to prioritize ideas or actions, that's a cognitive skill. It's one of our rational thinking skills. And it means that you're able to perceive that one thing is more important than another. And the example I always use for that is if, if I were experiencing dementia and I were sitting drinking a cup of coffee, um, you know, playing a game on my phone, and my husband said, Judy, you need to take a shower and get ready because we have to drive to town to go to a doctor's appointment. I know for sure I would look at him and say no because I would prefer to drink coffee than to do anything else in the morning. And that's not because that my personality has changed. That's not because I'm trying to give him a bad time. It's not because I just feel like being difficult. It's because I just can't do that function. I can't perceive that, that drinking coffee could be less important than taking a shower or that, that a deadline would mean that I should stop doing one thing and start doing another. That's a, lot, that's a rational thinking skill, and that's something we lose. So, you know, to understand what happens, and this is why with, with the Dawn Method, I say it's, you know, that what I teach is strength-based dementia care because it, we have to understand the things that, that a person can no longer do and then we want to be able to also understand the things they are still doing. Right. So how is that? Is that better for volume? No, yeah, that's yeah, that's better. As long as you've got it um, closer to you. Um, but yeah, because you were just shorting out. Oh no. And so they still okay. have they still have intuitive thought processes that they can yes. do. Yes. And yeah, and the thing to keep in mind is our intuitive thinking skills, that is our primary set of thinking skills and it's the most critical, most important part of what makes us human. The intuitive thinking skills equip us to to enjoy all the good things in life. 
and I, you know, I, in some sense, I think our intuitive thinking skills are somewhat akin to saying our soul. That um, it's your intuitive thinking skills that allow you to receive all of the sensory stimuli that come to you. So, you know, anything you can see or hear or smell or taste or touch, um, knowing where your feet and your hands are, um, you know, the position of your limbs, all of this information is coming to you unfiltered and completely. And it, that is your intuitive. That's, it's more um, passive and reflexive. Rational thinking is hard. You know, you have to, uh, if you want to use comparative thought or if you want to analyze something, um, and those are the more, you know, additional rational thinking school tools that we have. That's hard. You have to think about it and you have to work at it. But your intuitive thinking skills, which enable you to enjoy all of the good things in life, everything that is beautiful, um, all of your emotions, all of the emotions that your companions are showing, and um, your, all of your sensory information and companionship. All of that is available to you through your intuitive thinking skills. And when we experience dementia, we don't lose any of that. We keep all of that. So a person that, that has dementia, if you were to sit uh-huh. with them and play their you know, music that they like or you know, sing songs with them, you know, if they're spiritual, sing Christian songs, um, look at pictures together, go on walks, sit out and look at, you know, look at nature, look at birds and things like that. They can do that and they can enjoy life and they are still building memories. They may forget them the next day, but during the period of time where they are experiencing them, they're happy, right? Right. And you're not arguing and... And those are the things that, to me, are so important that people that are listening to us understand that, you know, they they have intuitive thinking. And your loved one, your spouse or your parent, that's still your parent. It's just they're on a different level now. And, again, it goes back to you have to meet them where they are. And if you realize that these are the things that they can comprehend, you know, in their own way, then that's what you want to do because you want to make that time pleasant for them and you want to make it pleasant for you. You you don't want to have the stress. Right. So, you know, let's let's go back to my example of Mary. I'm going to take Mary and we're going to go to the grocery store. Okay. So you end up going to the grocery store together. Um, you know, most of us do. So, so you're in the. Let's say Judy. I'm. I'm the. It's me. I have Mary with me. She's my client, and we go to the grocery store. Now, it, what if I say to Mary, Mary? Okay, so we need to get some groceries. What is it that you needed to get? Now, I've asked her an open-ended question. Sure, what she's not going to know. Well, what is she going to try to do? She's going to try to use her memory skills to envision what's in her refrigerator right now. Now, me, I could probably do that. If I go 
with a girlfriend or with my husband. I'm in the grocery store, and they turn to me, and they say, Judy, what groceries do you need to get? Right away, my mind starts going through the cupboards and through the the, uh, refrigerator, and I'm using my memory skills to recall what was there when I left the house the last time I looked. But now Mary, she can't do this. She's lost her memory skills. But what I could do is use my own memory skills, my own rational thinking skills, and before we leave her house, I will take a quick look in her refrigerator and in her cupboards and figure out what it is she needs. Then when we're in the grocery store, I can turn to Mary and say, oh, Mary, I know you really like tomatoes. I don't think you have any at home. Um, Shall we pick up a couple of tomatoes for you? Now, I've turned her attention to tomatoes, and she loves tomatoes. And if I'm really thinking, I might be saying, oh, look at these ones over here. These must be the old-fashioned ones. Oh, look at the colors on these. And I'm pointing out something beautiful to her. Rather than demand that she use memory skills and come up with some factual information, I use mine on her behalf, and then I point out something I think she'll find beautiful. That way, and you're making it fun. It's a memory, and you're making it pleasant. It's pleasant. Right. Now, you know, it's not so much a memory. Now, think about what you're saying there, because, Marcia, it's becoming a memory for you, but it probably well, isn't going to be acceptable no, for no, her. No, not for her, but, but during the period of time that she's doing that, it's pleasant for her. She's going to forget it, you know, more than likely, you know, a minute from then yeah. that you did that. But during that period of time, she she is enjoying her time, and it's a memory for you. Like with my dad and I, yes. you know, sitting out yeah. in the front, you know, he was counting cars yes. and watching the cars go by. Counting you know, with cars the puppies. with the little dogs. But, yeah. Right. Yep. And that, what you know, that was a memory that we were doing. Well, what you're, and what you're touching on, Marcia, is a, a critically important concept. But... Um, Daniel Kahneman, he wrote that book, Thinking Fast and Slow, and that's, a, that's a, actually a really great book for understanding dementia. But he, in, in part five of that book, he talks about we human beings, that we have two selves. We have the remembering self and the experiential self. And some of us really prefer the remembering self and some of us prefer the experiential self. And, and Dr. Kahneman, he uses the example of how we, how we choose to spend our vacations. And he says, you know, some of us, we go to the same place every year, rent the same cabin on the same beach, and we, we take photographs and we document everything. That, those of us that choose to do the same thing over and over again, we really love a remembering self. And, and for us, that is very pleasurable. Very, it, it's a great source of happiness, nostalgia, and all of these memories, and things being the same. But he says, you know, others of us prefer the experiential self. And that's those of us who, when we go on vacation, we go someplace different every year. Um, you know, somebody who's an experiential uh, prefers the experience, they probably are going to enjoy all kinds of different activities, uh, maybe even extreme sports. And they might not even remember to take a camera or to take pictures because they're having so much fun in the moment. But we need to take that premise 
that psychological premise, understanding of ourselves as human beings, and apply that to dementia. Because the truth is, when we experience dementia, we lose the ability, we lose our remembering selves. That bit is going to go away. It's going to fade away, sometimes rapidly, sometimes uh, gradually, but it'll be gone. And your loved one will end up living in the three-second now. That is our, our psychological perception of now, of the present. They end up living there, and they can't leave because if you don't have your memory skills, you can't retrieve information from the past. You can't drift into memories and nostalgia and enjoy your memories. But the other thing you can't do is recognize what is familiar because you've lost the knowledge of what has been known before. And that's why people end up wanting to go home and what they really want is to feel at home, to feel that they're surrounded by the familiar, but that's going to drift away. What doesn't leave, what we never lose to dementia, and this is so important for caregivers to understand so that they themselves can get respite. What's critically important is that that when I lose my memory skills, I lose the past, but I don't lose the present. Now, when I lose my rational thinking skills, I actually lose the future because it's rational thinking skills that allow us to plan, to anticipate, to solve a problem, um, and to initiate, and we should talk about initiation and try to remind me, Marcia, because I'll wander. But, but when I lose the ability to go into the past and to go in this, into the future, I am stuck in the present. But I'm stuck in the present with all of my intuitive thinking skills. So there I am experiencing dementia, and, and I don't have the ability to choose for myself activities or to bring beautiful things or the things I love into my life myself. I need my companions to do it for me. If they do, then we can have a really good time together in the present. So like your dad, you, you made it happen when you figured out that he really liked sitting in the front yard and counting cars as they went by and watching the puppies play. You made it happen. And then that was, that was wonderful experience for the two of you in the present, and it became a wonderful memory for you. For me, even though right, he probably, right. Yeah, yeah. But you know what's really important about that? You know, I, it always breaks my heart when I hear somebody say, um, you know, the, uh, the long goodbye, I lost my loved one to dementia, and then, then I lost them again when they passed away. Mm-hmm. Think about mm-hmm. that for a minute. And that's true. Think for a minute. That's, well, it's true. It's I can. Yeah. But, no, I don't want to think but, about it because then it makes me very sad. But, but it's true. But, you do lose them of, twice. Do we have to? And here, this is what, you know, um, when I'm teaching families, when I'm working with families, this is, this is what I teach them, is your loved one losing memory skills, rational thinking skills, and three out of five attention skills, and that's a different topic. But, but they're losing those skills, and you are not. So what you do is whenever they repeat themselves, Whenever they tell that story or those stories that they tell over and over and over again, 
you memorize them. And you memorize them in using their words and their phrases. And you do that because you know the day is coming when they won't be able to remember those stories anymore. Right. Now, right. when they can no longer remember their own stories, then you use photographs, you use pictures, you use um, the music they love, and you tell them their stories. And when you do that, I, you know, I see pe- people just come right back to life. And it, let me give you one example. Um, one of my clients, she she was very close to death, and um, she had had to move out of her home in Idaho, and she had to move into a care facility because she just she ran out of money. You know, they had to sell the home and um, to pay for her care, and so she'd ended up having to move across into Washington. Um, she had been living at this adult family home, and I would would go to visit her. And I arrived, um, I think this was maybe a few weeks before she died. And there was a new caregiver. And the caregiver, I introduced myself and said I was there to see Mary. And the caregiver looked at me and just kind of gave me a blank look and said, why? She can't talk. She doesn't open her eyes. She doesn't eat. She just lies in bed. You're, that's a waste of your time. Wow. You should spend your time with somebody else here. And I said, no, no, she's not. She, Mary is there, and I'm, I'm here to visit Mary. And the caregiver, she rolled her eyes at me and said, well, you're wasting your time, and walked off. Wow. Now, I went into Mary's room, and I found a chair, and I pulled the chair up so that and Mary was in bed, and she was lying on her side, and she was in the you know, fetal position. And the covers pulled up to her shoulders. And I put the chair so that if she were to open her eyes, she would see me. And I didn't touch her because at that point, she would not have any idea who I was. And, and I would be a complete stranger to her. So I didn't want to scare her or touch her or make her feel like I was taking advantage. I sat right. down or in the chair. Threatened. I didn't want to, Yeah. And so I sat down in the chair and I said, oh, Mary, Mary, it's Judy. It's your dear friend, Judy. You and me, we love each other. We've known each other. Oh, let me think. How many years has it been? Eight years, Mary. It was eight years. You know how we met? And I began to tell her all of our happy stories. And I told her about meeting her when she was out front watering her tomatoes. I told her about... um, you know, going for ice cream, going for scenic drives. We would go to Joanne Fabric and just, um, I, I would tell her, you know, that I was missing a button and, and I knew she loved fabric. So that was my way of getting her into Joanne Fabric so she could touch all the fabric and, you know, and see all the buttons and everything else. I told her all of our stories. And as I talked, one eye opened and then closed. And then both eyes opened and closed. And she was looking at me like she couldn't believe her ears. After about five, six, seven minutes, her eyes were open. And she was beginning to move. After I had told her our stories, I said, Mary, you know, you are such a wonderful person. I remember you told me. And I began to tell her all of her stories, all of her favorite stories about her husband, 
meeting her husband when they were both in college about her children. I told her every story I could recall. And I used her words and I used her phrases because I knew that was important to her. So I sat with her and I told her who loved her, who she loved, and why her life was a good and worthwhile life. And by the time I finished... I'm I'm going to cry. I do every time I tell this story. By the time I had finished just, talking. Well, you're making me weepy. That is so sweet, you know, Judy. But I never yeah. lost Mary until Mary died. Because, I, because Mary didn't have her memory skills, but I have mine. And so right. by the time I, you know, after 10 minutes, she was holding both of my hands in hers. She was laughing giggling and crying. And when I had to leave after a half an hour, her eyes were filled with tears and she she pressed her lips. She wanted a kiss. Now, yeah. don't, nobody can tell me and that, that, and that, Mary, that I lost Mary. I didn't. Yeah. Well, and, and that person... She is 100% there. Yeah. Yeah. This, this, this is a person saying you can't talk to her. She's asleep. She won't acknowledge. You know that's right. and that is the problem. Is and and that's why I wished I had found, you know, you before I lost my dad. Although, you know, I did things like read the Bible to him and you know sing spiritual songs and, you know, I and I just sat by his bed for you know towards the end for a long, mm-hmm. I mean for hours and hours days, but. Yeah. He had one of the things that he um, he did is I would take him to the church, and one day a week they would put together Bibles that were written in Spanish or different languages that would be sent out to other countries, and he would go in. I would take him there. I would get him, let them know he's here. He would sit down and he would start, you know, processing, helping them do stuff. It was just you know, manual type work, putting this together, yeah. the same thing, over repetition. Yep. And he would do that, and then yep. I would go back and go in and pick him back up. And one day he had gotten up and kind of disappeared. Nobody knew where he was, and I was, like, getting frantic, and they're all looking for him. And he had gone out the door. We would go out, you know, after Sunday church. He had gone yep. out the wrong door yep. and was waiting for me over there. And I'm like, oh, my goodness. So... You know, I yeah. just had to keep a closer watch. But he felt when he would come home, he was so excited and would tell me, you know, how right. many they had processed. And he, he felt worthwhile. He felt like he was doing something and that his services right. were needed. And I think that's one of the things that, that I didn't realize until after and, you know, reading and whatnot, that they need to feel like they matter and that they are making a difference right. and that – they they are needed to do something. Somebody needs their services because they feel worthwhile. And if an individual doesn't feel like their life matters, then right. why are they living? Right. And and I think this that's important basic. for people to understand. It's a basic human need. Just because I'm experiencing dementia does not mean that I have ceased to be a human being. My needs are exactly the same. And, and what just a, that's a beautiful example of what I call sense of value, um, one of the four well-being needs we have as human beings. You know, we need to be able to contribute. We need to be able to give. 
we need to be able to forgive. You know, this is what, what to be able to be gracious and noble is very important. And to know that we have, we can have something to offer and that there are people that value us, critically important. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. Right. So. And, and they don't, um, one of the other things that I was reading um, in your documentation, which uh, to the listeners, there's a ton out there. I can tell you I have 25 <laughs> pages of your documents, and that's not all of them. No. And, you know, that's single-spaced, and, you know, nope. I've been reading through them. But um, the, they don't like to hear depressing things because they're going to, you know, they may not remember that they heard it, but they can get sad. And so a lot of times with, you know, my dad would watch the news and get really depressed about it. But a lot of times they don't, right. they don't need to know about, you know, bad things, and and so we didn't, you know, I wouldn't tell him, you know, when he said, he asked me one time, are you my wife, and I said, no, Daddy, you know, you're you're my dad, and he goes, do I have a wife, and you don't want to go in, you know, she's gone, Dad, you know, so I I did try not to tell him anything that would be depressing, although I didn't know that 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 I was doing was the right thing to do. But right. it is yeah, better for them not kind. to know that. Well, you know, but think about why. What, what, um, to watch the news, um, to me that would be really, well, part of it is, is that um, daytime television or television and commercials are, as from a sensory point of view, um, there's a lot of rapid movement, flashing light, um, loud staccato voices and interruption. And none of that is good for us when um, when our ability to process and recognize sensory stimuli is gone. So so keep in mind, so thinking about skills, if um, I'm receiving sensory stimulation all the time, I'm experiencing dementia. Let's say, I, you know, Judy has, is experiencing dementia. I'm receiving all of that sensory stimuli. So if the television is on, I'm seeing it, hearing it, um, receiving all of them, the sound and the light and all those images. However, if I'm losing my memory skills, a lot of it won't make sense to me. You know, even if I'm living in the same house I've lived in for 50 years and the, the wind blows and my screen door slams. The screen door has been slamming ever since I hung it 20 years ago. If I've lost my memory skills, I won't know. I won't be able to remember what that sound is. And so I can't tell myself that it's just a screen door slamming. No need to be alarmed. So that's what happens when you lose memory skills. But we also lose rational thinking skills. And that means... I I hear the slam of the screen door, but I can't problem solve. I can't deduce um, through analysis and and through deduction. I can't arrive at an answer. So I hear the sound, and it might startle me, and I don't know whether to be afraid or not. So when somebody's watching something like the news, and they're, they are understanding some of it, but not all of it. Very likely they're, they're perceiving um, the emotions 
communicated because actually this is this is one of the things we haven't talked about yet, Marcia, but one of the one of the strengths of dementia, one of the things that we, that we do when we're experiencing dementia, we never lose the ability is to perceive and read nonverbal communication. We receive that information loud and clear. Are you are you still close to the speaker? I am. I'm right here. Oh, I'm so sorry. Okay. Okay. It's like one inch from my face. <laughs> okay. Uh, Just let me. How about if I turn the chair of different direction? Maybe that's better for for the cell phone. Did that work? Yeah, that's a little bit better. Yeah. Okay. How about how about here? <laughs> Maybe. It's just, I'm sorry, I'm so close to the Canadian border. I think we have a lot of interference from, uh, from no, the Canadian I understand. I just, <laughs> yeah, I just wanted, yeah. I didn't know if you had moved away from that. So go ahead. I didn't mean to interrupt you. I just don't okay. want anybody to miss what you're saying. Yeah, so so nonverbal communication. So we know that when somebody's experiencing dementia and they lose memory, they're going to lose a lot of their spoken language. They're going to lose vocabulary. They'll just flat forget what that word means. Right. Um, and eventually, they're going to lose all of their spoken language, and they'll stop understanding any words at all. What they never lose is the ability to read your nonverbal communication. So we need to know that if we're spending time with somebody who's experiencing dementia, because... They are reading facial expression, body language, gesture, and intonation probably better than they ever have before in their lives. Because wow. now they rely on it. So so now, you know, I can tell you a funny story about how I learned about this. It was about two, no, let's see, three or four years into my work with people experiencing dementia. And the daughter of one of my clients ran a ad agency um, and she really wanted you know she she wanted me to make what I was teaching her about her mom available um on a wider scale and she really wanted to help me brand and create dawn and um out of the goodness of her heart she did and but she kept pushing me to get Botox. She thought I should give up wearing l l bean and start looking like more of a an, an attorney. And uh, dressed, you know, more <laughs> like a business person. And she thought I should get um, get Botox oh because I had creases, creases in my forehead, and I should start wearing makeup and cut my hair and, you know, just look more professional. Well, I'm I'm pretty relaxed, um, and and it, I just kept refusing because I thought, you know, I'm not vain. I I don't need to do that. That's that's a lot of money. And finally, she wore me down to the point where I actually did it. I went and got Botox. So all of a sudden, my forehead is frozen, and my frown lines are gone. Guess what happened? The she next didn't morning, recognize you. I, <laughs> no, the next morning, I went to my first client, and I couldn't get over how happy they were. Oh. And, and then I go to my next client, and I can't get over how peaceful he is. And I go to the next client and I think, oh, for goodness sake, everybody's so happy today. 
And what I eventually realized is that my clients were seeing my perpetual frown. You know, and my frown was most of us, wow. sadly, most, most of us actually have a default frown, not a default smile. You know, by, by the time you get through childhood, you, you get through school, you've been concentrating and you've been, you know, chewing the end of your pencil to take exams and concentrating and trying really hard. And then, then you're a young adult and life is difficult and there's lots to worry about. And pretty soon you get to your 40s and you have those frown lines. And so our faces, most of the time in repose, we are wearing a frown. However, if our companion is experiencing dementia and they've lost their memory skills, and they look at your face, and you have a frown on your face, they see the frown, and they don't have memory skills, so they can't say to themselves, oh, I know why Judy's frowning. She was just talking um, at the front desk. She was just trying to solve a problem. She, she was just telling me she's, you know, there's, she's worried about one of her children. They can't do that. They, they simply see the frown. Now, if they are also losing rational thinking skills, then when they see a frown on your face, they're not going to be able to say to themselves, well, she was frowning when she walked in here, so it's not about me. I guess she's worried about something. Or, or, or and in essence, what happens if I'm experiencing dementia, minus my memory skills, minus my rational thinking skills, I take every expression on your face at face value every bit of intonation, your body language, everything, I take it personally because I can't analyze. So therefore, it's all about me. So Judy would walk into her client's homes and they'd see Judy frowning. Judy didn't know she was frowning. And then they would respond in kind, depending on their personalities. One client might be a little irritated because he would look at my frown and he'd think, well, what I do wrong now? Now what have I done? Or, you know, another client might have been um, more timid and see a frown on my face and think, oh, my goodness, something terrible has happened. Oh, no, oh, no. If she's worried, I should be worried. So another if you roll in your eyes, react. that's probably, oh. rolling your eyes is probably you not a good con- thing. Con- <laughs> Well, you've disputed that you're irritated with that person, so you're going to get irritation right back. Right, you know, right. So this is really important, isn't it? So if your companion's experiencing dementia, you've got to know this. And um, in the end, I did, you know, the, the Botox gave me a peaceful smile appearance. I went on to teach all of my clients and all of my family characters that you should be a friend and say, what can I be for And if it's more than a friend, the best thing you can do is get rested. Teach yeah, you're, Judy, you're breaking up. You're breaking up that uh, we can't make out what you're saying. So, let me try. Are you still there? Yeah. Judy, are you still there? I think it's better. Right. Yeah, we're cutting. 
Let me try this. Is it any better now? It is now, but, yeah, what you were saying while ago, I, I couldn't catch any of that. Oh, no. Okay, well, this I'm okay. standing in my most southernmost window of my home. Okay. <laughs> trying to, I can so I'll hear just you stay now. right here. Okay. okay. All right. But so I when I was saying, see, yeah. Well, I wanted to go over the six stages of dementia for people that may not know what they were. If you could just briefly go over those, would that be all right? Sure, yeah. Yeah, because, you know, all of us begin as healthy adults, right? Or or sometimes now it's actually childhood dementia. Um, they're, They're having quite a problem in Australia with childhood dementia. But generally here in this country, we're talking about adults. So we all start at the same place. We all start as an independent, fully functioning adult. And we're looking after ourselves. We've raised kids, most of us. Um, we might have run businesses. We're living our, taking care of our homes, taking care of ourselves entirely. And we're independent. Now, we may or may not be able to perceive that we're beginning to lose some skills. And generally, um, people will be able to perceive that they're losing memory skills but if you're losing rational thinking skills, it's going to be harder. And there is a condition called anosognosia, which is the condition of having lost the ability to, to have self-knowledge, to be aware of your changing skills. So it's really important for families to understand that it is quite possible, in fact, it's probable that their loved one will be unable to perceive that they are losing skills, particularly if those rational thinking skills are going first. And that's very typical with cardiovascular disease-induced dementia, um, FTD, some of the more common varieties that we have. So the person is living independently if they are unable to perceive that they're losing skills, they're going to be very resistant to having anybody coming into the house. They're going to be very concerned about losing their independence. And if they can't perceive that their skills are changing, they can't help but feel that everybody is picking on them or is trying to trick them or is trying to steal from them. And so it's it's very important um, that you make that first determination, that you understand whether or not your loved one is grieving and terrified or whether they're unaware, unable to perceive the changes because you've got to, um, if the person's grieving and terrified, they're going to accept your help. If they're unable to perceive the changes they're going through, then they're going to refuse it. And I've had clients where they would just lock the doors, not let, let the kids in. And um, so so this is the independent stage. And when people are still independent, um, most of us, when we are in the early stages, mild cognitive impairment or MCI, those early stages of dementia, we are going to be saying, thank you, thank you. That was very nice of you to take me to the grocery store. I really appreciate it. Um, thanks very much, no, you don't need to come in. And that's basically what you're going to hear from somebody who's in those early stages. 
um, somebody in those stages, you know, once you know they are experiencing cognitive losses, it's good to have somebody just pop in and just make sure things are going okay. Um, we did a lot of that. I would call it wellness checks or, um, you know, when a, when a client couldn't understand that they really needed help, we might approach it by saying, oh, well, yes, you know, yeah, maybe your kids are a little bit over-concerned or, yeah, maybe they are just kind of meddling. But you know what? If you and I go get groceries together, I'll tell them you're doing fine. And then that way you can get somebody to accept um, companionship. And that way you can keep a, a bit of an eye on them. But at some point, the person who was an independent adult, at some point, as they're losing their memory skills, losing those rational thinking skills, they're going to be home alone and something's going to happen and they won't be able to solve the problem. So maybe they wake up in the morning and they walk into the kitchen and they start making their coffee in the same coffee maker they've always had and all of a sudden they can't figure out how to make their coffee. Or maybe they wake up in the middle of the night and they just can't place, they can't think how did I ever end up living in this building? Why does everything look odd? Why doesn't it look familiar? Where am I? Or something is going to happen and they won't be able to resolve it. Now what happens then is that we lose confidence. We, we begin to doubt our ability to, to care for ourselves and keep ourselves safe. At that point, if you know, if, if we've been doing wellness checks or maybe the, the client has agreed to just go grocery shopping you know, with, with a companion, instead of saying, thank you, that was nice, um, you know, I'll see you next time, you don't need to come in, all of a sudden they seem to be welcoming. And so the client, you know they've moved to the second stage and I call this second stage uncertainty. And this is when the client says, well, thank you very much for taking me for groceries. Would you like to come in for a cup of coffee? Or or they'll say, um, thanks very much. That was lovely. We had a great time. Um, when will I see you next? Or will I see you tomorrow? And as soon as I hear a client say that, I know that something occurred. They had a problem. Something was odd. They lost their confidence. And they no longer feel 100% independent. Now they're uncertain. Okay, so now I'm going to, um, we want to be seeing them on a regular basis. So this will be maybe, you know, an hour a day just to drop in a companion, uh, cup of tea, you know, go out for a drive, run an errand, something like that. But at that point, you want the person um, to um, to be uh, seeing another person at least once every 24 hours. Now okay. things progress. So this person in the uncertainty stage, they're, um, they're on the path, with, they're in dementia, but they're, most of the time they can, they can complete a task. You know, they're losing this, the cause and effect and the sequencing and prioritization. They're losing it. It's, they're becoming a little less adept at reading the clock or reading the calendar accurately. They have good days and bad days. But they're, they're beginning to lose skills at a rate that you wouldn't want them to be alone more than 24 hours 
without a visitor. Now, as they're losing those, those um, memory skills, it will become more and more difficult for them to, to exercise choice. And once you're, you know, when we would be seeing somebody every day, you know, maybe an hour activity of, of some sort, but at some point you're going to notice that they seem to become really compliant. So instead of saying, you know, you, you, you go into a coffee shop and you're, you're looking at the menu or you're looking at the board and you say, okay, mom, what are you having today? And she says, she's, she, she's probably going to say something like, oh, I'll just have whatever you're having, honey. Or, um, you know, what do you want to do? You know, so what would you like to do? And 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 he, your dad would say, well, you know, whatever you feel like, it's fine with me. I'm, you know, whatever is fine. Now, this isn't because they've had a personality change and have suddenly become easygoing. What this means is that they've lost their memory skills to the point where they cannot draw information, you know, factual information to mind and hold it in their mind long enough to make a selection. So this is what I would call the follow the leader stage, which is the third stage uh, when we're looking at dementia from the perspective of changes to functioning. So now they're going to be less able to manage information for two reasons. The loss of those rational thinking skills, so they're not really able to use comparative thinking, and also the loss of memory skills, so they're not able to retrieve information. Now they're going to need more help, and I teach in in my sense of control um, section, uh, which is a sixth class of of the Dawn method. I teach how to you you want to avoid open-ended questions. You want to use either-or questions. You want to start making options and and choices visible. And um, there's ways that you can enhance the person's ability to exercise choice. If you do. If you do avoid those open-ended questions and and you help them um, exercise choice, then you are also empowering and giving them uh, dignity and a feeling of autonomy, which is very important for feeling, um, you know, of value and, and feeling good. Okay. And so, now from yeah, I just go need ahead. to to move on because we have seven minutes and we still have a lot oh. to go through. So. Okay. okay. Yeah, it's yeah. on my website. I, it's pretty well marked. Right. It'll take but you I through the to, stages. But, yeah, because yeah, it's the different stages. And then um, the the next stage that was follow the leader, and I recognized that in yes. my dad. He never knew what he wanted to eat, whatever you're having. I'll have whatever you're having. Right. Um, and then stage right. four, which is clingy. Cling, cling, clingy. <laughs> clinginess. Yeah, yeah that's a dip, clinginess. Or clingy dementia. Yeah. Um, yes. When yep. that's when they start getting confused and they feel the need, I guess, to be closer to you. And well, yeah, and you, you think you about how that would there. feel. Sure. Yeah, and and clingy. A person becomes clingy when they become unable to make sense of the environment around them. And and this is so hard for the, the caregiver at home, especially for spouses, because <clears throat> because you're you're simply you can't even get two minutes alone in the bathroom without them knocking on the door or wanting to right. come in. And any change so, is when you're trying to do change, it's very difficult for them. Um, I'll just I want to insert one thing. I have a friend <laughs> whose uh, whose daughter-in-law's mother 
Does that make sense? Anyway, mm-hmm. um, it's, yes. they were moving into a new place, and they packed her clothes, but she kept unpacking them. So they decided she was being very difficult. Right. So when they moved into the new oh. house, they took her and moved her into a nursing home because she was being difficult. And and I was and what I said then is you took her out with the trash. And that's how yeah. I'm sure that the mother felt because they they didn't take her to their new home. They took her to another facility instead of letting her live with them, which was heartbreaking. I can say now that yeah. she is living again with them. But but that's something that people need to understand. They have a difficult time with change. Um, and then there's the overnight yeah. care when they get to the point where you realize that they need you need to have somebody with them at all times right? Um, because it can yeah. be very dangerous and then you're and at you full-time tell, care. Yeah, and actually overnight care comes before full-time care, but full-time right. care, you know, and you think if somebody's in a in a facility that they have full-time care. They don't. They actually they have don't. less contact. And and when I say full-time care, you know, you think about the person who's living in the 3 seconds now. No past, no future, no ability to solve problems, no ability to recognize any human being. That person needs to have a companion like me sitting beside my friend Mary and just interpreting what's going on. You right. need and to they have can't a companion. Tell you, they can't no. tell you yeah. what happened last night. Or they can't no, tell you if somebody can't. was mean to them or rough with them. And, you know, right. we're seeing this all the time, and it's cruel, it's inhumane, but it is happening. And that's when a lot yeah. of people are putting cameras in the room yeah. with their yeah. loved ones. So you can see what's happening yeah. because a person with dementia can't tell you that. And the other thing they're doing no. with people with dementia now is they don't remember to eat. So they're not going to eat. and Nobody's going to try to make them eat. I get you can't force somebody to eat. My dad went through that. He wanted his vegetables all lined up, and I would line them up, and then he would eat across the bottom, put a whole bunch in his mouth, and try to drink something oh. with a mouthful of food. Yeah. Yeah. You know, And then he would wonder who mixed up his plate. And then he just got to the point <laughs> yeah. that he would absolutely refuse yeah. to eat anything. But yeah, it really helps are... if you just offer just one one bite at a time, one thing at a time, rather than having a plate of food or sitting at the table. You know, with my clients, I used to, you know, because people, I would put, you put a plate of food in front of somebody. If you've lost rational thinking skills, it is really difficult to pick up a utensil and start to use it. It is really difficult well, to make the decision about what item you're going to help yourself to. And so right, I would invite my clients to into the kitchen. Right, yeah. And and so I would yeah. just say to somebody, oh, you know, Mary, could you give, give me a hand here? You've got a really good sense of taste. Now, what do you think? How does this taste? Have a little bite. What do you think? And even if a person says, I'm not hungry, they'll usually do a taste test with you. Um, one of our clients, my goodness, she got so thin, but um, we had this, we all had to take turns because we all put on so much weight, and so we only would have to go one day a week, but she, we took her seven days a week to Washington State University's Creamery Ferdinand's Ice Cream Store, where they made fresh ice cream, um, and she, we could get her to 
to sit down to a bowl of ice cream and eat the entire thing. Now, we got, that gave her protein, fat, and carbohydrate. We could get her to drink a cup of coffee with it. Um, and for a long time, that was all we could get her to eat other than taste test, you know, nibble but on things. But it was things. something. But yeah. So let me... It was um, something, have, yeah, so we all took turns. Yeah, we have two but, minutes. Yeah. Um, I want to give oh. people Judy Cornish's website. It is the Dawn Method. And that's D-A-W-N, like the detergent, thedawnmethod.com. And there is a ton of information out there that you can yes. read up on about dementia. So, okay, we may have to have yeah. you come back um, on with us <laughs> because we are out of time. But thank you, Judy, so much okay. for coming on. And I hope that some of our listeners garnered some information and go out to her website there's a ton more information out there. So, Judy, thank you so much for coming on tonight and giving us. Oh, you're um, welcome. Yes. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for inviting me. So, okay. And to <laughs> so, our listeners, thank you so much for calling in and listening. So, um, we'll see you in two weeks. All right, everybody. Good night. Good night, Judy. Thank you. Yep. Bye bye. Okay. Good night, Marty.